So, what does does Dean know that we showed his movie? How much does Dean know? I have no idea. I don't, I don't know anything. Okay. Well, hi, Dean. I know I'm very Clark. little. Hey, Clark. <laughs> and uh, we've got Russell, and then uh, Randy is in Atlanta. Russell and I live together. We're in the same room. And then Randy is uh, over there in Atlanta, Georgia, as he recently moved over there. What up, Randy? And we are, we're in the Bay Area. We're in San wow, Francisco. he really doesn't say anything, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you. I mean, if you start talking about, like, Truffaut or any of some of that highbrow All shit, right. he'll, he'll chirp <laughs> Okay, great. That's his catnip. Um, but, uh, Dean, uh, so there's a lot of things to talk about. As, as Russell said, we're, we're big fans and we got a lot to cover here today, Dean. Uh, but I, I will, I want to roll into the main thing. Uh, so we showed, was it two years ago now? Yeah. So we, we run a faux documentary and, um, found footage film festival. I know about this. Yes. We showed fraud a couple years ago, um, at my behest. Uh, so this is our fifth year. And for four years up until we showed Wait, it at my behest, that's the only intro you're going to give it. This full has I'm, gone. I, on- you interrupted <laughs> me. I was giving my intro. Okay. Well, no, just because you've gone on three separate podcasts, and his whole pitch was I had to fight for fraud to be shown because nobody else wanted to show it. <laughs> Look, I'm a storyteller. What All are you right, doing? yeah, I'm a liar. <laughs> Part of story, telling stories. Dean's yeah. a liar. Oh wow, fraud's full of lies. That's the show. That's the movie. <laughs> I prefer the word fraud, but yeah, okay. There we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, we showed fraud, and um, but I I was introduced to you, Dean, by um, what I'm going to call one of my favorite things on the planet, and that was and that was uh, enjoy it with Brody Stevens. Oh wow, yeah. So I'd I'd like to start there because oh that show because Brody meant a lot to me, and yeah, that show meant a lot to, to me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just how how did you get involved with Brody and, and the show and Zach and everything? Man, you know, I I it was a it was a while ago. I had just moved to I moved to L.A. because I kind of already wanted to move to L.A., but I because of that job. And I was like, oh, OK, well, I'll have a job there when, when I get there, at least. And I knew uh, I hadn't met Brody before, but I knew of him because I just ran and, you know, had uh, in comedy circles and had comedian friends. and. Obviously, he was this like uh, comedian's comedian, which I'm yeah. sure you're aware of, where like, you know, everyone was just obsessed with what he was doing. And so, um, I, yeah, I had gotten hired on it because I had done like some little videos that no one ever saw for Zach Galifianakis and he had hired me. And uh, and, it, and <laughs> I think I was like waiting for my flight to leave to move to L.A. Um, when some people, some other comedian friends started texting me being like, Hey, do you, I don't know. Do you know Brody? Like his, his texts are kind of funky, right? His, his tweets are like really weird. And I was like, no, what are they talking about? And then, and then someone was like, yeah, it seems like there's, seems like he's been tweeting uh, every few minutes for 48 hours. And I was like, what? So this, so this, you know, so Brody was going through his like mental episode right when I was like, leaving for LA to supposedly work on that show. And then I was like, Oh no, the star of the show is just like gone off the handle. He was, you know, like telling if whatever, you know, if you've seen the show, you know, he, he sort of like had this manic episode. Um, yep. And then, and then many months later, you know, he had, he had gotten better and was on medication and, um, and he and the rest of the crew sort of wanted to like proceed with the show. Um, 
And so we ended up doing it and it, and it was, it really was, um, I don't know, you know, I've never, I've never like talked about it. Uh, I feel like I might start getting emotional if we talk about it, but, um, yeah, he was a great guy and he, and he was just like such a special talent. And, um, ultimately, uh, yeah. I mean, how, I'm sorry, how much... I'm sorry to start it on a down note. It's, I, it's one of my favorite things I've ever made though. And I think yeah. that it went from being, Oh, it's just going to be a slice of life show about a comedian to being, um, I think like a really, at least we were trying to be thoughtful documentary about what it means to be somebody who's suddenly diagnosed with like, uh, uh, what I would say is sort of like a pharmaceutically induced bipolar disorder. Sure. And then, and then all the ripple effects that, you know, having a manic episode on, on stage, uh, or, or while under the spotlight, like how to, how to repair those relationships and get back on your feet. Um, the thing that freaked me out, I think the most was that when he was like having that manic episode for a minute, he had like everyone's ear in Hollywood, like more than he ever had in his life. And it was like, Oh, this, this place is dangerous. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Um, it's, it was one of those things where, cause it started with comedy central and then, um, cause they build it as like the first dramatic series from comedy yeah. central. And I think that it, it lured in a, a, a bigger audience to, to see Brody, uh, coming in from that perspective, but w- me, you know, being a comedy nerd, you know, I, I was very familiar with Brody and we actually tried to work with Brody up here, but uh, live nation interfered with that. <laughs> live um, nation. Yeah. Man, I, yeah. That's the thing. Like if you work with live nation, you can't work at any smaller clubs because of punchline and Cobbs. Uh-huh. So if you want to work punchline or Cobbs, you can't work any of the smaller clubs. So what were you going to work with them on? We were going to do a show. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. This oh, is back when you, we were talking with him. Yeah. You were doing stand up at the yeah. time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we were going to have him headline for a weekend. And, uh, but agents. No, okay. Sure. Now I'm new, I'm new to Brody. And, um, how would that have played in the Bay Area? I feel like we're so. Would have been great. I, well, I mean, he would have crushed, but I mean, like, I'm kind of new to the whole toil of comedy. And I, I think, Dean, you're a really interesting dude to have directed because with documentary and comedy, the, the parallel here is truth. And it's kind of a different approach. Like, uh, I come from like documentary background. So I know. Mm-hmm. Every choice you make in a documentary is essentially a manipulation. You come from a documentary background? Well, more so than a comedy one. Oh, I'm like, sorry. I didn't know we were talking to Errol Morris. I know. I've, okay. I've taken a single documentary class. so <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was very informative. But, you know, I, what I learned from that was if you put a person in front of a green screen, that's a choice. And the audience sees it and it, it changes their perception. If you put them in a lab coat and put them in front of a bookshelf, that also changes it. And sure. with comedy... Comedy is kind of like, you know, you hang out with a person in a room. I'm speaking about stand-up. And it's all about kind of like disarming them, but also getting to a level like of a relationship where you can't do online, where you can have a real conversation and touch on real shit. And I've only just started getting into Brody. And I watched the first episode of the show and I'm like, it's an interesting mashup seeing Dean because it's kind of like exploring the truth. But through his, I don't know, is Brody guarded? He seems... So I, a lot of what you just said is like really interesting. I hadn't thought about it before. The, the Brody is incredible for all his, like when I first saw, I don't know, someone showed me a video of him or something. I was like, he's a, he was unrelatable to me because I was just like, I don't know. He seemed like this big jock who was like super confident. And I was like, 
that's I don't know, just not really my vibe. I don't think that's many people's like vibe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he is inc- he was incredible at disarming people who had that impression of him. I think he maybe he knew, but like Zach Galifianakis gave the best summary of his like entire character and why he's relatable. It's like he's a jock doing performance art. And I would, I would add a layer to that, which is doing performance art that like is so vulnerable, like putting himself in really vulnerable situations and, and sort of like, uh, I don't know, in a way he, he expressed both like a frailty and a toxic masculinity at the same time that made you made many, I mean, sure. He like probably bombed just as much as he killed, but he was really good at connecting with people on like a one-on-one level, even though he's like so intimidating looking and loud and can be angry. Yeah, I, it's really hard to explain how he does it or whatever. He, I would see shows where he's. This is in the show too, where he would, and he also he also takes confrontational uh, stances while also telling the audience, "You can't be confrontational to me." Like that's off limits here. So when he finds that an audience was like be crossing their arms, he would just go through the front row and point at people and go, "Arms crossed, negative. Legs crossed, closed off. You're not looking at me. You like." <laughs> he'd be like. It was so funny. He would just and he just would do it until people would like let down their defenses. Yeah, I think in terms of like the truth thing, he's. Um, I think it was certainly like me and my editors wanting the reason it ended up being like quote unquote Comedy Central's like first drama was I didn't the kind of show that like a lot of the producers wanted to make was like straightforward comedy, basically like let's make sketch it, sketch comedy that Brody was the center of, but let's just like do it really slapdash, and I. I don't know. My my father's a, a a psychiatrist. My mom's a social worker. I didn't really feel comfortable making like a comedy show with this guy who's just recovering from a manic episode that wasn't, you know, in some ways trying to be therapeutic and um, tender with that process. So sure. it sort of ended up being like a weird combo of the two. And I think that that was what allowed Brody to feel comfortable exploring those things, too. Um, I mean, he had also just started doing therapy and stuff at the time, but, but the, he was, he, I, I think he became like less guarded as he saw like, oh, this can, I can talk about the real things that are behind some of this and it can be treated sensitively and I won't come off looking like, you know, you know, he has like all the, he's, he was a really old school guy. Like he had all those old school ideas of like, men don't cry. And, um, I think he felt like an outsider for most of his life because he was so sensitive. Yeah. Was it, was it difficult for him to, you know, play within the constraints of the show of what you were trying to make? Meaning like, did he just want to do his, like, did you just let him go? No, we had like a kind of a structured idea to like, okay, well, this scene needs to be this or this scene needs to be this. A lot of the time. So yeah, we'd be like, let's just, Probably the way that they sh- I've never done like reality TV, but I'm assuming it was sort of similar to that where we would be like, you're we're going to film you going, you know, to your sister's house to help with her like jewelry business and then like kind of letting that just roll. Yeah, but it is a weird it's a weird when I now that I'm thinking back on that show, it is a weird combo where it's like some of the most outlandish cartoonish things were just real. Like his mom really is just like that to him and is con- is like just full of zingers. And uh, and then other things that are, you know, more, quote unquote, true to his or seem more true or I would say are getting at some kind of honesty. uh, Those are 
a little more scripted or a little more guided. Uh, and it's, it is, it's a weird line because you're, especially when you're dealing with comedians, you can make a documentary about a comedian and never access the person behind their stage persona because they're doing an artificial performance, which they've like built up their entire life to protect them from, you know, whatever their earlier trauma was. So I've been but telling I, you for years. Oh, I know. <laughs> hey, no, I, I, um, I've learned to become a lot more vulnerable, uh, just from enjoying comedy in a way. Mm-hmm. And you really like, um, with stand up, you can really tell who's vulnerable on stage. And even yeah. if they're not necessarily making you laugh, you can, you still start to root for them. And yes. I'll tell you, Brody, he was the type of comedian that scared the shit out of me as yeah. a, you know, as a totally insecure dude, like, I didn't want to go into a comedy club. And I used to tell this to Clark all the time. Like my fear is that that comedian looks me in the eye and sees I'm weak <laughs> and they just prey on me. And it's like, that was my nightmare. And I mean, I think what the second time I ever went to stand up was to support you. Yeah. And I remember sitting behind a pole, like kind of being like, I'm out of, I'm out of sight. This guy knows me too. And then watching that first episode of Brody's show where he like, you know, it's a part of like the crowd work. Oh, oh man, yeah. it's confrontational. But I feel like after the end of that, it would almost be like therapeutic just being in the room. Yeah. Like you'd want to hug. And it never made sense to me because every comedian I saw, they loved the dude. Where I I think the only exposure I had was him uh, opening up Chelsea Lately. And I was like, nope. I'm scared (laughs) of that guy. I don't want to fuck with him. Like, how tall was Brody? Brody's a big guy. Yeah. He played uh, baseball at Arizona State. He's a giant. Yeah, I'm just like, I don't want that guy making fun of me because normally, I mean, I'm I'm large, mostly wide than tall. But like if you got some like swarthy little bastard coming after you could be like, Bitch, get away from me. Like, I'll push you. You know what I mean? But when somebody's got a foot on you and they look like that, it's like, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah totally. And he's lifting kettlebells on stage. <laughs> yeah. Love kettlebells. Man, I, I only briefly started episode one of that sh- of your show. And man, I am so intrigued. Again, because I can't even tell what it is. It looks like a great platform for a comedian, but it also looks like um, it reminded me of uh, Behind the Mat, the wrestling documentary. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, it's kind of like, well, you know, because with pro wrestling, it's all KFAB and it's similar to stand up where you build this persona and then you get a documentary uh, filmmaker who can actually get people being like vulnerable and honest. And it's a different world. And sometimes it's not one you want to look at. Uh-huh. And it, it can be very ugly. And uh, I don't know, man. I'm excited. I mean, I've only watched like half of episode one, but Bro- I'm I'm intrigued. Brody's the closest to a professional wrestler you could get in stand-up comedy, I think. <laughs> He's like, you really, when you say like kayfabe, kayfabe, I was like, oh yeah, there is so much. There, That was a lot of like the process was being like, I, I wish we'd stumbled across like using that term to direct him to be like, okay, now let's do one that's not kayfabe. <laughs> would, would he have taken that direction? I think so. He loves he loves sports metaphors. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good end. Well, because now I, I watch a lot of uh, Clark gives me shit. I mostly just watch Kill Tony. The the craft of that <laughs> show I really like. And I feel like uh, I love amateur work, too, yeah. which kind of feeds into like found footage film, too. I, yeah. I love watching what non-professionals do. Absolutely. And the dialogue they have there on stage is always incredible. And the thing I think about Brody is the only video that pops up on my feed on YouTube now is him and Tony going at it and yeah, him yeah, yeah. on, on telescope having weird. And it's like periscope periscope. periscope. Yeah. And I'm like, is this the act? Is that like his bit or 
because you know it's it's like with found footage it's like this isn't on stage this is happening in a hallway at the comedy store and he's yes. streaming it live but that fight with the other person is very real yeah yeah i yeah totally i mean a lot of the time you couldn't really tell where the line was with brody and where it wasn't i think i think i don't you know i yeah, I, I couldn't necessarily tell even when i was spending like all day every day with him uh he was i mean <laughs> there's so much to unpack about this show i haven't thanks for allowing me to like revisit it um I also think that the, all the all those social media apps that allow you to just have a stage all the time made it makes it probably confusing for someone that maybe doesn't yeah. have rigid lines. But yeah, I would I would when Periscope was still around, I would like click I'd check in on it because at that point that was like way after the show, and so we didn't have that much contact. But I would like you know just check in on Brody, and he's drumming on his steering wheel in a parking lot two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, social media blending things is interesting because uh, I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that where people like lose, uh, like I'm a big TikTok person, but now in real life I am. And whenever I think about that with comedy, I always think of you telling me that happened to Andrew Dice Clay, where you're like, oh, you know, yeah. he, kinda, he it worked out for him that this character is just like everybody loves it. Yeah. And then the real guy kind of just faded. Like, yes. he, like he's that he's dude. become Dice. But is that something people celebrate or mourn? Well, it's definitely a death of sorts, I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, yeah. Have you seen that the, that when the, the Day the Laughter Died album? Or listen Please. To One of my favorite things. <laughs> it's a true. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Talk about a blurred line, man. Uh, yeah, that's, it's an incredible document uh, of something. <laughs> I don't know. I, is it celebrated? I don't, I mean. I bet it's probably celebrated by their like agents and you know touring yeah. <laughs> reps and uh, mourned by those that were close to the old person who liked the old person. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's weird. Um, it's also you know. get, it, it also ramps up, and I think it's impossible to avoid, especially when you're somebody like. I mean, I don't know Andrew Dice Clay, but like somebody who has like this really bombastic stage persona seeing fans you know on the street and not being that person is like probably a constant disappointment and a constant reinforcement that you should just be the character all the time because nobody wants to run into andrew dice clay and meet uh, and andrew <laughs> andrew silverstein yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> now okay comedy and documentary and truth right they're they're like thrown in this blender it's the holy right here now i'm i'm curious i was now, fraud. Now we got we got to touch on fraud because we're all so smitten with it. And you know, I did. I I looked up our programming from I 2019 of three the unnamed footage festival, our third one uh, out here in the Bay Area, pretty much ushered in the coronavirus. Yeah, and <laughs> we we actually lost a couple of guests that were supposed to be there uh, in person. It was uh, two, two weeks before quarantine. Yeah, to COVID already took them. Yeah. They were hanging out in China. No, uh. They were, uh, you know, uh, as a found footage filmmaker might be, a little paranoid. And sure. they gave us a couple cryptic tests and we're like, you know, I might not make it. Yeah. And then sent a picture of them in a gas mask. And we're like, okay, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, that's not a joke. <laughs> anyway, we, we, we powered on. And on Sunday, we showed it. Now, I just want to give context of how important we think your film is. We, uh, we put fraud after Noroi. Uh, probably the most epic found footage movie ever made uh, that came out of Japan. 
Norway the Curse. Do you know that film? I don't think so. It's but... um it's mixed media. It's about a guy investigating a uh, documentary subject yeah. that any documentarian that's followed has gone missing there or died. Oh yes, so, I know about this movie, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, in the found footage community, it's huge. It's a yeah. two-hour. It's two hours, uh, which epic. is a no-no for found footage normally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then we followed that up with fraud, and after fraud, we did there inside. Now the idea here was uh, we start fun, and then we we take all everything we learned from Noroi, and we apply that to to fraud, which is really interesting because it's a lot of editing and storytelling. And then I, I really wanted fraud to be a platform for their inside, which was a more, it's kind of like the purge meets the strangers, but the director, uh, John Paul Pinelli, he, he knew that to make a real found footage film, the true master behind the story is the editor. So there are things in that movie that make no fucking sense for a Hollywood film to have. And they actually feel kind of pretentious and like, if your eyes aren't rolling during that first watch, you, you don't understand like film. And he knew he was shooting himself in the foot doing it. And I really, I thought if we understood fraud, people would be a little bit more open. Uh-huh. Yet, what, what I've learned from films like fraud is when you, when you tell, when you paint a picture <laughs> that's a little bit uh, skewed or blurred and people really buy in hook, line and sinker, yeah. the reaction is they get fucking mad. <laughs> Has, has that yeah. been your reaction, like the response with that film? Oh, absolutely. Nobody likes to be tricked, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. I, it was like, we, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there were, I was pretty surprised. I knew that we were going to have some, like, kind of, uh, I don't know, Q&As that would be a little, like, could get a little heated or something. I was expecting a little heat about it, but I did not expect that, like, people when they've just spent an hour watching some characters that they think are real and they are furious at them, even when you tell them that's not the reality, they're still fear. That fury doesn't just go away. It has to like burn off. (laughs) And, uh, and so I did not really expect that. I don't know if that's like the same experience you guys had, but it's certainly, especially older people in the crowd. I, I tend to notice like a generation gap, the doc purists who were like, this is not a documentary and you, you're morally bankrupt for doing this basically um those were usually older people but not always it it was really interesting to see the reaction i think any time that we i mean it's sort of it's it's, to me it feels like equivalent of like i don't know um when your faculties fail you i think it might be human nature to get into a kind of a fight or flight mode yeah how antiquated is documentaries (laughs) are truth Oh my like, god! You're not you're not really <laughs> critically thinking at all about documentaries, and I mean, no. documentaries are great propaganda for the exact opposite reason. Yes, and I think we forgot that, and I you know I don't know why we would have forgotten that so baked into the genesis of documentary as a genre, like you know, Nanook of the North and Robert yep. Flaherty's movies were like scripted, and everyone kind of knew that, even and we were calling them documentaries, and I think at some point people forgot. And uh, now still seem to assume that they have some like journalistic integrity, uh, but they're not. They're just another genre like any movie. Exactly. Mm. Like I've been saying, Ken Burns is a scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> That's a toupee. Nobody's buying that. No, I mean, so, yeah, fraud, you know, after we watched it, uh, we we had some people who were angry. 
And uh-huh. uh, they're like, why, why would you show this? And I'm like, why do you know what we do? Here? <laughs> I'm like, you know, we show the Blair Witch and mostly the conversation we have is just about like, you know, I, we've been talking about this for years now. And I really think people who enjoy found footage are people who aren't there for truth. And they're kind of like, I'm on board for whatever reality you're pitching me. Mm-hmm. I think we love fraud because the technique involved the time spent the storytelling chops you have to have to make some shit like that and like it man you're working within parameters of video that other people shot it couldn't be easy and it's it's um astonishing and then you get somebody come up to you and be like that was fucking fake it was a waste of time and i'm like what do you think the wizard of oz was <laughs> right you know, i'm like no I'm like hollywood movies they're not real yeah, yeah. So like, what oh, the fuck are you looking for? I think that, yeah, I think people, I know, I know. I'm like, man, it would have been like when people would be like, I can understand. Uh, well, so, sorry. I can understand like if someone thinks it's all written and scripted and we're just going, you know, really hard into like, I don't know, whatever. Um, I can understand yeah. being, yeah, I can understand being annoyed that that story took the form it did if you think it's written. Um which whatever but uh but yeah the people that (laughs) people that are like it was fake therefore it was a waste of time and i'm upset i don't really understand that criticism i understand being like you know i don't know yeah yeah they're interesting points i in terms of the uh the editing and everything like yes it's absolutely the the, it all started for me from a place of i was an editor uh, before i was a director and i felt like you know i was making my living editing stuff i didn't care about occasionally like commercials or like for a while it was water birth tutorials like it's just oh, crap that, that was, that was oh, my geez. first editing editing gig fresh out of college was this like two hour long water birth tutorial <laughs> um but so i was just like really you know i was enamored of editing as an artistic medium and then i went into the work world and like there's not that much opportunity to do creative things with editing and i so i just you know, was started thinking about like, how can I use footage to make myself to uh, amuse myself basically. And I would, for a while I was like planning to make this website called look what I did instead, which is just footage from like the David Yerman collection commercial that I edited, but just like edited to create like a little horror film or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, please and, do. <laughs> and so that, and so that led into this idea of like, I just was a fan of, uh, Gary's YouTube videos because they seemed I just felt like they were they were like pulsing with something weird underneath and I knew I couldn't like ever get in touch with them I probably wouldn't get any answers and so I was just like I maybe I can just use this footage to tell the story to re- just recontextualize all of this to answer those questions that I have for myself um, or at least like propose a, an alternate reality with it um, and so yeah it's very I agree with you that like I don't think editors get enough credit for being like truly the mastermind of not just found footage films, but a lot of, a lot of movies, definitely documentaries. Um, no, but, for sure. And, and yeah, if you're, if you're going to look at a found footage tape and be, and there's any editing at all, the editor is now the author of this movie. It doesn't matter if it's like a snuff film that like, I mean, if we're going to go into like horror territory and it's like a lady was chopped up, but there's editing in there. It's like, well, the true deviant here is the guy that like touched it up. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he's the yeah. last hand here. And I think, you know, with fraud, what makes it so eerie is just that uh, the man behind the camera 
is shooting that video seemingly for nobody but himself. Like there's an audience interaction that happens when we watch a found footage film. And it's like, what are they trying to tell me? And in that, I think uh, he was just incredibly honest. Uh, he was very attracted to his wife. And uh, I don't know if he thought he was ever going to show anybody this stuff, even though he put it on YouTube. Yeah. And when you show an audience and he's zooming in on, uh, mind you, his wife on the beach, yeah. her butt, yeah. the revulsion that goes through <laughs> that crowd. And it's like they have a couple of kids. They've, you know, it's been consensual for a while. Yeah. I, it's so it's so interesting. Well, it it brings up so many interesting things. So, um, so so he's okay. The 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 real. So I didn't I didn't meet Gary or his family while we were making it. I spoke to him on the phone. I think twice the whole time. Um, because specifically because I wanted to avoid like knowing what the hell was going on with him or his family or. I just wanted yeah. to be able to create from a place of like total blank slate. But then when I met him and I started talking to him, um, I found, I learned that the, the, the reason he made a YouTube channel was because Anche, his wife's family still live in Berlin and he wanted to give them like slice of life footage of what it was like living in America, which means that the zooming, all the things that I was like, <laughs> what is this guy doing? Zooming in on, he does a ton of like zooming in on logos that just says like dentine ice. And then he'll say dentine ice. And I was like, what is this? Like, why? What is the context where this makes sense? So when he told me that, I was like, oh, got it. For a second, I was like, got it. That makes a lot of these things that feel sort of like uh, vaguely predatory and like really like (laughs) detail oriented. It makes them suddenly like, oh, it's educational for this, for his in-laws. But then it makes zooming in on his wife's butt and lots of teenagers in bikinis make even less sense. <laughs> it also made sense because she was wearing a lot of uh, Red Bull Formula One stuff. Oh, and at yeah. that time, Sebastian Vettel, who's a German driver. All right. Here we go. Yes. Wow. Dude. Yes, that's what they're celebrating when uh, when there's a moment where they're jumping up and down that we made it look like they're jumping up and down like giggling because they bought a bunch of new hats and stuff. They're yeah. <laughs> giggling because he won whatever that race was. I'm not sure. Uh, the, the Formula One World Championship. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's Sebastian Vettel. Okay. Sebastian, hey, Sebastian Vettel, one of the top drivers. <laughs> Didn't work out with Ferrari, but it's okay. So, man, that, that changes the whole context of that hotel. Yeah. Because, yeah. Mm. I mean, God, what a great. So, basically, you took those celebrations and their worshiping of brand. Or you turned it into that because they were celebrating a fraud they had committed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Man, genius. I so at what point, like how did you find him? I you know, I wish I could remember or had a good story about how I initially found him, but I found him so much earlier than I even began making the movie. Like I think I just, you know, subscribed to his YouTube channel like three years before I started even had the idea to like make this something. And I think it was just back then the algorithms were not as good and <laughs> as sophisticated. And I think it was just suggested for you, like, or something. I went down some ho- weird hole and found these videos. And I was like, what? What is this? Like, it stood out because everyone else on the internet is like trying to uh, brand themselves or cultivate an image. And this was just like watching someone's life flash before their eyes. Uh, sort of, I mean, it, some of this stuff is so neutral. Why would you record? Why would you record? a package of denty nice and say denty nice. Why would you, <laughs> why would you record something? And then sometimes you'd be like, uh, you'd see, it'd be like one second of a cloud and then one second of his daughter being like, daddy, can I have the, and then it cuts. And I'm like, 
if you're making a home movie, you focus on the kids. You don't just like <laughs> show the, half of a sentence or whatever. And so I was just like so enamored. Also, the editing style, it's so like our editing in the film is mimicking his editing of the videos, the original videos. Um, and that to me as an editor, I, I just was like really drawn by how fresh and like bonkers it seemed. Like I didn't know if it was like some genius or like outsider artist or just a dad, which is what it turned out to be is a dad who has a camera that records when he holds down a button, but then stops when he lifts his finger off. So it's like that, that pacing was created by that. Um, so I, yeah, I just like, you know, he'd post every few months and I'd watch his new video or some of it and just, and show my friends and be like, isn't this interesting and like weird? Like it's so frenetic and it feels so, yeah, it, it felt like mainlining somebody's like memories. <laughs> wow. No, it felt I, like uh... I was watching someone's life flash before their eyes, just before they died or I'm dying, but I saw someone else's life by accident. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Now, everything that you used in the film, was that ever, was all of that uploaded to YouTube or did you have any sort of like B-roll stuff from him? Um, no, it was all, all his, all his videos. We only got in touch with him to be like, Hey, can we do this kind of weird art project with your footage where we make it seem like a different, you know, um, story. And he was like, yeah, cool. And then we just downloaded <laughs> everything from his YouTube, but the, but the, uh, it wouldn't have been possible without other videos that were also on YouTube. So like, he his footage uh for example like we would when we needed the house to burn down we needed a shot of the house burning down we would type into youtube like my neighbor's house on fire and find oh. that footage or whatever so everything existed on the internet already existed on youtube or daily motion or you know one of those but um it wasn't all his footage like the shot of the car sinking in the lake is reversed footage of a towing company pulling a car out of a lake. <laughs> love it. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. Um, now, Fraud, did you ever get shit for making money off of somebody else's like work? I don't I don't know how to phrase that. Somebody else's YouTube channel? I guess if I'd made money, uh, that would okay, have been yeah. criticism. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I was trying to frame that from like an audience because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Well, it's also so this goes back to like the state of documentary right now. It's also interesting because there's this ongoing documentary uh, uh, debate in the documentary world about whether you should pay subjects or whether they should be producers on a film about them because oh. it like you're saying, you know, it change it changes the performance they're doing of themselves to know that they are maybe getting paid for this, maybe they'd be inclined to make it more salacious, maybe they'd be inclined not to tell you the whole truth. Um so Gary actually does have um, some percentage of the back end. Should we ever see that? Yeah. Um, should we ever become a profitable film? Um, uh, and I feel like I, I just think that we need more refined terms around documentary. I think like <clears throat> for a documentary, for a, for, a, for a story, for a subject that is not, you know, like has no motive to change their story. But their story is, you know, the story of your documentary and their access is essential to why people are seeing this movie. I think that they should get paid for that. Um, or they should be producers on the movie or, you know, um, be, benefit from its success. But a lot of people feel like that's like, you know, that um, lessens the integrity of the film. Well, you know, I'll um, argue against you here. I if if 
Now, I imagine in my head that somebody would come up and be like, how can you profit off of, you know, somebody else's video that they like put up on a free platform? And I now um, I do like doing a lot of people watching on YouTube, too. So I watch yeah. a lot of weirdos who post a lot of stuff. And yeah. one of them, I'm sorry, I'll bring him up. Gothic King Cobra. You get two he, minutes. He was a subject of a documentary <laughs> and he spun out doing his own thing. His name's Josh, Josh Saunders. He's in uh, Wyoming and he uh, has a ventriloquist dummy. He's a gothic cowboy. He owns a shotgun. He's probably manic depressive. He uh, drinks and passes out on stream. And he's got a, <laughs> you know, he's got a good heart, but he's, fuck, he's an antagonistic dick. Uh-huh. And I watch, I, I used to watch him a lot. And the reason I bring him up is because there have to be ten other people who have complete YouTube channels just re-editing his footage, and they're oh, monetized. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, nobody <laughs> should be able to give you shit about that when this is kind of the new territory we're in. And at yeah. the end of the day. I think Cobra, he even realizes the more people making videos about me, they drive them to me. Right. So I don't, we're in a weird new time where we are um, definitely in a weird new time. You know, I I've heard, uh, uh, what's his name? Andrew Bard, I think a philosopher who was talking about how money really isn't the driving, um, uh, currency anymore. It's, uh, time it's eyeballs and attention. So if you have a bunch of satellite, channels out there bringing attention to you you're actually richer for it that's interesting is that a, yeah yeah that's interesting the logic though could then be used uh in, to to fuck with um filmmakers or creators because if if a if a lone person is allowed let's say allowed to do that and monetize yeah. it then i think youtube would argue like oh well we can you know we can use what's his name gothic king cobra in our commercials or we can <laughs> We can exploit them, and not that they would want to. It sounds like, but <laughs> but I, I think, uh, we can exploit that. But I kind of, I'm kind of, a, I kind of agree with you. I think. I think uh, Andrew Bard, one his, uh, what he points to to defend that is, how many times have you come across a commercial on Instagram or Facebook, or any social media, and clicked on it and bought it because of that commercial? And it's like your answer might be never. Yeah, and, it's really never. You know, this is big companies throwing money at you. Like they're trading money for your time and you're saying no. Like you you yeah. can't buy it. And that's why, you know, TikTok is the number one platform, even though I'm still confused as hell what they're watching. <laughs> <laughs> I I I agree that uh, attention is like that's the new economy or something. Um I've I found myself recently at, like going to the dog park a lot. I mean, I do have a dog, I'm not a creeper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I found I found myself going to the dog park more and more, and I was like, "Why do I, why does this like space feel so much better?" And it dawned on me that, like, especially living in LA as I do, it's the only place where I'm not being advertised to. Oh. It's the only it's the only place, and I until almost right don't want to say until until yeah, exactly. Let's get an overlook yeah. banner on a bench. Or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, God, that is true. It's and so- also it's. It's wild to see the 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 numbers now, like the way that Amazon or Netflix like flex now is by is by the accumulated hours that a show was watched. So it'll be like, you know, Squid Game had 50 million hours this evening or whatever. Yeah, it, it is totally an attention. Uh, <laughs> but we also think we think it's free. Like, I still kind of feel like it's free. Like, I'm not losing anything by losing eight hours of my day to watching some bullshit I didn't even choose. Yeah. <laughs> Well, is is fraud available on Blu-ray? 
No, I don't think it's available on Blu-ray. I think it's um or DVD, it anything physical. No, actually, that's a really interesting. Oh, what the hell? Never... You know, we need to own a copy. I've got my digital <laughs> copy on iTunes. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. There is a there is a physical copy you can get through Grasshopper Educational, I think, uh, which is like our distributor for educational, like for colleges and stuff. I think they do have a DVD you can buy, but it's crazy expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's three hundred and seventy-five dollars. So. <laughs> <laughs> also, what are you teaching people with fraud? It's on an education. <laughs> you know, it's been really interesting because I've done a bunch of, I've done a lot of like college, like uh, lectures or speaking engagement type things. And it is like, we. I think that we should teach media literacy to kids in, you know, high school or middle school or younger, because there is this sort of like idea that we, we trust our eyes and we don't know how manipulative editing can be. And people still are that way. I don't understand. <laughs> but like, so that's sort of, you know, it's been included in a lot of, there's like found footage courses at some colleges and it's, it's also learned to used to like teach some, some media literacy stuff, but it's so important. It's so much more important now than it ever has been. Yeah. I think, uh, American culture, Western culture, we're kind of learning the hard way with media. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I actually think that that, that little wrinkle of like, oh, weird people think documentaries are journalism, huh? I think yeah. that realization that I had, I think I had it at the exact same time Steve Bannon had it. And I went on to make fraud and <laughs> he went on to make propaganda about Hillary Clinton or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I trust Michael Moore. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. Seems legit to me. All right. So let, let's pivot into um, what, what you're doing now, Dean, that uh, apparently you have put uh, God, you started this project over a decade ago, and it's taken you. Um, how long have you been working on the feature? I've been working on the feature. I've been working on the Marcel Bichelle feature for uh, at least six years. We just finished in August, um, so yeah, yeah, it's over six years by now. So, how, but the character, so- but the character in the short predate that. That's yeah, literally like ten years ago we made the short. Yeah, it was a massive YouTube video um, right. and uh, stop motion. And um, was that was that your first um, introduction into stop motion? I think so, except for like maybe little videos that like me and my brothers made as kids. But yeah, yeah. And then you decided that you wanted to make a a, a film about uh, this seashell with shoes on. Yeah, uh, we well, when it came out, it was like so huge on the Internet. It was like a character that was very dear to me and and to Jenny Slate, who does the voice of Marcel and who I write it with. And it just was like the the way that a a, like, quote unquote, children's character gets kind of categorized in the in the math or in the minds of like most entertainment companies that would be interested in partnering with you to make like expand that it really grossed us out and we were kind of like, so we got a lot of offers to make a feature, make a TV show or whatever. And, and none of them seemed like they were, I don't know, like, like interested in making the same kind of thing that I was interested in making. And so we just, we just like waved them off and we're like, nah, all right. You know, like we made a couple of um, picture books, which were just like fun. uh, And that seemed like a fun way to kind of slowly expand the world of Marcel. And, And so we just waved them off and then, um, I think it was like five years later or something. We were like, had an idea that maybe could become a feature, but we knew we needed like, I I certainly felt like not only is it a character that like 
uh, a studio is not going to be happy that like I want to hold on to the rights to the character and I don't want any merchandise and I don't want blah, blah, blah. You know, like they're not used to creators holding any cards when they go into these negotiations. And so with something like Marcel that already has a fan base and already has like, um, it's already popular on the internet. Like, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it was, it was weird. So, so whatever, many years later, we, we had this idea about what a feature could look like and what it could be like and how to specifically how to make it, which I think comes back to documentary because the, I, I basically was like really committed to trying to find a way to make a feature film that told a story and was orchestrated in the way you expect a feature film to be, but that felt really authentically documentary. And obviously doing that with like a, you know, fictional character like Marcel who's animated is like, you have to kind of rethink all your production models. And so part of the reason that it took a long time in addition to being animated was like figuring out how do we, okay, how do we write a screenplay with this character that feels like a documentary and never actually sit down and like, you know, be like, interior shell house or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So we started, we started by just doing like lots and lots of improvisation, just recording audio. And then from those like improvs and from those kind of like, uh, almost like improv prompts, um, I and my co-writer, Nick Paley, who's also an editor, we basically like then wrote the movie around those great pieces of improv that we loved. And then we'd go back in and like, we'd add a character and we'd add a character here and be like, okay, now we're going to improv this scene. And yeah. it, I, I can't wait for you guys to see it. Cause it, it really feels like a documentary. And my hope is people are going to be like, what, how did they make this? It feels like a documentary and it's an animated shell. Well, as we would like to call it a mockumentary because you're taking, no, no, no. I used to hate my, you know what? No, Dean, I'm pitching you this. It's the All truth right, trilogy. It. You start with Brody. And you have a you have a comedian who's very defended, but you know you're getting in there and you're finding the truth. Then we go to fraud, and you you construct a complete faux reality out of real life. Now you're creating this character isn't even human, but we're finding the truth well, here. What is you? Yeah, I know. I know it, what is narrative? What is film? We're so profound here. <laughs> and actually, I had an idea. We need. I got the title, but we need the script. Profound footage. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> or Dean, get I, much prefer, I much prefer it to mockumentary. I just think mockumentary has this baggage of being like people picture like a mighty wind or like Christopher Guest movies, and oh. I don't know, docufiction. <laughs> docufiction sounds more. I mean, I love those movies, but that's I don't. Yeah, I don't know. You know, um, I dude, I oh my god, we we have a film fest about this shit, and I remember being so allergic to that term mockumentary i'm like no everything Uh we're changing it to faux documentary because it felt like it was a derogative term yeah it just sounds like a fucking flibberty gibbet thing yeah yeah but you know i came around and i read a french (laughs) author and he was talking about how we're mocking the format that's all we're mocking and i'm like you know honestly i feel like you making this stop motion shell thing that would be like something cute on tiktok that a million people would see and i would scroll by uh, I am honestly like very excited for it. I, uh, I'm all, I'm constantly moved to tears by like stop motion that become mm-hmm. like more human than human. Oh. Yeah. I mean, the reason that I was like, Oh, this can be so yeah. Stop motion is by its nature. I mean, I think a lot of times it's used to give something like a creepy aesthetic. Cause it's so like staccato and weird. 
and inhuman, but there's something about it that's so vulnerable because it's like human and fallible. It's recognizably, I don't know, like, yeah, like, like human and vulnerable. There's a vulnerability to something that is cute. That's stop motion. Trying, trying to just fucking do its level best to be a thing is like, (laughs) I feel so connected to that. And you really see it in stop motion because it's hard and imprecise and, yeah, I think I think that is something you're going to love about it, I hope. Well, it's definitely like Uncanny Valley, except when it's like a shell with an eyeball at the hole. It's yeah. like, well, what is that? And, you know, stand-up comedy. So the only thing we know about a person who hits the stage is what they look like. And what, what you've pointed out to me, Clark, is a lot of people open up just deconstructing that. Yeah. So by the end of like maybe a minute, you're kind of like, well, okay, what's left now? Yeah, like, I, I got nothing. But then now they're free to do whatever the fuck they want. Because sure, they've yeah. kind of removed your prejudice there. And when you look at when you look at the stop motion character, it's almost like cartoon. It's like, well, what what can I bring? Like what baggage can I put on that shell? If anything, yeah, totally. it's cute. I, I think I love that more than like we just premiered the movie at Telluride and I had sort of forgotten how emotional it was because I've been working on it for so long. And it was so great to see. Like I, I was connected back to like, oh yeah, when we had this original idea, I was so pumped that people were gonna step in. To the theater being like, oh, yeah, silly thing from the Internet 10 years ago. All right, whatever. I'll watch this. And then they're just like completely emotionally devastated by it. <laughs> it's like oh, my favorite, it. my favorite part of it. <laughs> it's so unexpectedly emotional and, and real. What was that movie where uh, they were claymation real people, but like the trailer had them getting on a plane. I, it came out like four years ago. Anomalisa. Anomalisa. Oh, Anomalisa. Yeah. I remember that damn trailer made me tear up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie's great. So my favorite still- thing about my favorite thing about that movie is that they they which we do a little bit of in Marcel is like they you somehow know I don't know if it's just because I'm a filmmaker you know how laborious the process of stop motion is. To me, it's the funniest thing in the world that they just take they'll take in that movie three minutes to to just show him waiting for his credit card to clear. Yeah. <laughs> And you know someone worked on it for a month and a half. <laughs> oh my god, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Lee Hardcastle. Do you know his work? I don't think so. What, what, what's he mean? Look him up on uh, YouTube. He does stop motion, and he Christ. did one. Um, the hamster one. What's it called? Hamster Hell. Hamster yeah, Hell. This guy is hilarious. That's my uh, my gift to you. Watch that. It's one of my favorite things ever. And if you're gonna make me cry watching Marcel, I want you to cry watching. <laughs> I need you to cry watching Hamster Hell. I showed Hamster Hell to far too many people. They got way too upset about it. Oh, man. I'm getting <laughs> emotional right now. You know, honestly, no. If I'm, if we're going to – I know we're reaching our time. If I'm going to end on a recommendation, I honestly Please. think uh, – do you know Ghost Watch? Have you ever heard of that? I don't think so. So Ghost Watch, uh, the BBC did a Halloween special in 1992, and uh, it was a live recording from the most haunted house in England. The thing wow. was, they, they pre-recorded great. it, and it was it was a lie. And um, Leslie Manning, we had her on, God, four years ago. Yeah. I, I'd love her have her on now. I feel like we're much better. But, uh, <laughs> well, so she, she kind of, she looked at live television and deconstructed it and really was trying to figure out how, like, she was chasing verisimilitude and was like, how do we, there how do is. we really make, I, you've, I, been, I, you've been holding on to that I, word, <laughs> the same God, book that taught you mockumentary. For so tucked into his back pocket this whole conversation. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, 
Dean, you've heard of a swear jar. We have a verisimilitude <laughs> jar. Verisimilitude jar. That <laughs> he has to deposit a dollar into. Um, now, I man, there's a, there's a documentary on behind the curtains that really goes far. Yeah, it's it's, un, it's unavailable like fraud. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so I read a transcript. I bought a book, and I was like, oh, they wrote a book about it. No, it's it's a book that's a transcript of the documentary. Anyway, in that documentary. Leslie, um, she talks about how the BBC had over 11 million people tune into that. Uh, it worked on a horror level that they didn't expect would because they all thought it was kind of dumb. Also, mm-hmm. she was doing a thing where the whole her whole idea was like, you know, maybe don't trust everything the news says. Mm-hmm. So we'll call it Ghost Watch. And uh, so much like with War of the Worlds, the media took hold of it and yeah. they spun it. They got mad. They're like, you can't do this shit. And uh, somehow a kid committing suicide was uh, essentially tied into Ghostwatch and they blamed it for it. Anyway, Leslie would always talk about how the reaction was people were terrified and they tuned out. And then when when they were reassured and told that it was it was fiction, they got very angry. So much so that the BBC was nominated for several awards for that feature and they withdrew from them all because they just wanted people. They wanted people to forget. Wow. And I mean, it it never came to America. So is it convincing on a um, verisimilitude level? <laughs> <laughs> it you know it's great because they have uh, an anchor in studio. They have a uh-huh. guy in America answering phone calls with a bay of uh, psychics. Then they have people on the ground in a news van. Then they have a reporter in the building with the family. Also, oh the great thing is it's kind of like lighthearted, um, kind of like WNUF. Like we're doing a live stream. Yeah, yeah. Except. The, the subplot is really dark. And these are all news presenters. They're all real. They're these all, are, yeah. These, yeah, these are trusted news presenters that are doing a bit now. And wow. the, the thing is, Leslie knew, like, the, we're really going to win if this film is put on in the background and people ignore it. But when they pop in, maybe they catch something. And then right. they'll question it the whole time. So there's a ghost in that, in uh, Ghost Watch, who makes... um. So we've screened it, what, three times, like just in our house. Yeah. And uh, we counted up to four. Uh, when we talked to her, I think she said there were over 11. Yeah. So like, it's the wow, movie that keeps cool. on giving, but it's October. So if there's ever a That's time incredible. to check it out. I'm going to watch that tonight. You guys have given me so many great uh, new things that I'm adding to my list. It's my favorite part of like making movies is that people see what you make and then they're like, oh, this reminds me of this or this reminds me of this. And it's like, oh my God, you have, you have the best, uh, like uh, vetting process by like making stuff and putting it out in the world. Well, you know, we recommend fraud to most people too. <laughs> We're great. like, we, we, we think as, as found footage fans and people who curate the stuff, uh, you're, you're the peak of the mountain. Like people who, <laughs> who really understand the editing and how to really manipulate those fine moments. Like you make the great stuff. And I really think fraud, um, it it doesn't deserve to not be a part of the conversation every time because it's such a good example of what you can do with just editing somebody else's stuff and really making you villainize that family. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I feel very, I felt very like close to them. Like obviously, yes, we're saying that they're, I feel protective. <laughs> obviously, yes, they're saying that they like burnt down their house, but, but I, <laughs> but I feel that they were like, I guess I just feel like it could be any family. And so I sort of feel like they're justified in it. Like it's, it, it, you know, it's the logical conclusion of any sort of like capitalistic structure is to like 
uh, see what you can get away with and uh, exploit loopholes or weaknesses. And, and, and so I always think like, they seem like not that, obviously they're not great parents because they like <laughs> take their kids out of school and uh, kill their rabbits and then move <laughs> to Canada. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the idea that it's just so interesting to me that we have to constantly relearn this lesson over and over again. Like, you brought up War of the Worlds. It's like people, you know, apparently believe that, and then they believe Ghost Watch, and then they believe fraud, and uh, it's just really interesting. We have to keep reminding ourselves. Well, and I, you know, honestly, if I'm going to make an arg- argument for fraud being a positive thing, it's a cautionary tale. Like, yeah. don't dump all your shit on YouTube. Yeah, and, and if pay you your do, bills, if you do, <laughs> this can happen. Yeah. Oh, you know what I just thought of? Have you watched How to with John Wilson? Yes, I love it. So good. I put he's, you on that level. He's similarly as somebody who's like, uh, I don't know him, but I, I know some people that worked on it. And he's like, you know, obsessive about his footage. And he I, th- I think they used a ton of his footage that he had just logged over the years of living in New York in the, in the show. And I think it's like such a masterpiece. Yeah. Again, uh, every, but, uh, every shot is a is a like specific like. I lived in New York for a while. It feels like every shot in that entire show would have been the one interesting or crazy thing that you saw that week in living in New York or whatever. Like, it's just an incredible density. Yeah, it's like it's like constructed purely out of privileged moments. Yeah. And and there's like a through line that you don't know what is real and what's not. Because totally. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't. I don't know. Did they? I haven't read really like. I know a little bit about the process because I know some of the editors that worked on it, but I don't know. Did they, I know they went out and like, they had some teams to go out and like, okay, let's find, you know, uh, awnings or whatever, like in New York. Did <laughs> they have, yeah. <laughs> scaffoldings, yeah. Did they, uh, <laughs> did they, do you know if they like staged anything? I don't think they staged anything, but uh, they kind of harvested reality in a um, forward thinking way where it's yes, like, right. We have potential when we go into this shop that this guy is kind of a loose cannon, but we're not going to put all our eggs in that basket. Yeah. And we'll. That was, that's what uh, uh, a question that we got a lot about fraud was like, there's no, how did you get so like sort of lucky that, that all these moments were in their footage or that, that you could find, let's say the car sinking shot or whatever. And it's, it's, I always think like that wasn't it, what was available guided it. So we if we couldn't find them like uh blowing up their house then we look for like my neighbor's <laughs> house on fire you know and so a little bit they're looking like people who have that criticism or it's not exactly a criticism but a question are looking at it's the equivalent of looking at a vanity license plate and being like what are the what are the chances that this guy named scott would get the license plate scott's car <laughs> <laughs> yeah i you know i i uh because of my own personal insecurity, I shied away from a lot of uh, questions I thought would be basic bitch about fraud. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could talk again and I'll, I'll bug you about them. Just because, yeah, please. you know, when you're working within the parameters, I can only imagine that you spent like a month of a month straight of your life just digging through it, trying to construct a narrative. Oh, that's an that's an interesting part of it. We um, uh, like how we made it. We we basically spent. Uh, I want to say it was the first three or four months just going through. We had like a really vague outline just from having watched his clips for years. Like I knew little pieces I could probably find or I knew like, oh, there's lots of driving. There's lots of 
you know, like going to hotels or celebrating purchases. So there was kind of a loose outline of what the story could be. But then we went, we spent, I think, three months just, just me and my editor, John Rippon, who also deserves the hugest of shout outs, um, just spent three months watching all the footage and cataloging it, like basically tagging moments with like a set number of keywords, uh, which you can do in Final Cut 10, or you could at the time. Um, and so we had these like keywords. You're like, okay, mom angry. Every time we find a moment where mom looks pissed off, we're going to tag it with this mom angry tag. And then by the end of that three months, we could we had a database that was searchable, so we could be like, we could kind of construct scenes halfway with that. Dang, yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a fucking godsend of a tool for making that kind of film. Yeah, it's the only reason we use Final Cut 10, which I think is. I think Final Cut 10 is like horrible and I think people haven't really ado- adopted it, but it was the only one at the time where you could do that. Okay. I know you editing nerds in your final cut. I've heard so many podcasts <laughs> where people argue about the best version. What are, what are we on now with final cut? Oh, I, I lost track. I switched. From here. I had no idea. <laughs> they lost me. I, I genuinely think that they were like 10. Cause I don't know if you guys know about all this drama, but like final cut nine was like, everyone used final cut other than like, the OG like uh, industry standards is still avid, I think. But um, but everybody used Final Cut, who was like coming out of school and was young and wanted to do editing. And then they switched to Final Cut Ten, which is or Final Cut X, which is like a total ground up rebuild of how everything works. And I think it was very ahead of its time. It's like maybe ten years ahead of its time because it was so annoying to people that had gotten used to like any nonlinear <laughs> linear editing thing. And so everyone abandoned it. It was like, fuck you, Final Cut. You like like <laughs> did us dirty. And and uh, you know, maybe there's a few devotees, but people love to argue about whether it was like brilliant or shitty. All right. All right I'm gonna tap you in, Randy. What was that <laughs> shirt? There was a final cut joke in one of the movies we showed at Uff twenty four hour that only you yeah. got. It's in I Blame Society. He has a RIP uh, FCP7 shirt. Sure. Yeah. Which is the yeah, one that se- I used in school as well. Seven, I think, maybe was the last one before they went to X. Is that right? I think so, yeah. So, Randy, are you similarly like, fuck Final Cut? Because they changed? I haven't done video editing since I left okay. community college, really, but I was kind of on that train as well. It, it basically turned into like iMovie. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, the real devotees are the real like, prosumer users were like fuck you you're trying to make me like use your iMovie thing because you want to sell i don't know cell phones to dummies and then all the yeah. <laughs> and then all the and then all the amateurs were like well this is too complex i'm just gonna use iMovie so it sort of like alienated everyone all right randy turn off your mic and yeah, the, and the <laughs> yeah randy thanks for hey, ruining Mike. the show with nerd talk right. i would buy an rip fcp7 shirt though i didn't know that was available <laughs> I don't. Th- I think they made it for the movie. I think so. Oh, and, and uh, to end on a controversial note, um, uh, oh, fuck please. promising young woman and go watch I Blame Society. <laughs> that is the stamp. Uh, it's great, and and it's found cool. footage. It's very uh, wow. feminist yeah. forward. You know, it's great. <laughs> Uh, so Dane, you guys, um, there's no, there's no, like you guys are doing such like you're doing God's work by <laughs> curating found footage. Cause there's not like a huge mainstream awareness of it, but I mean, like every time I talk oh, to people, who are really, <laughs> <laughs> every time I talk to people who have really like really dived into it, I hear about like three new great found footage movies that, you know, I, I've now been like touring with this movie on and off and have seen tons of them, but like, I haven't heard there's both of those that you mentioned. I haven't heard of. Ghostwatch and I Blame Society. I don't know. 
Well, that's what we do. <laughs> We're here to serve. Thank, thank you for it. Dean, anytime you want recommendations, come hang out. Uh, this was beyond a thrill. Uh, we're so honored to have you on here. Again, Fraud is one of those Hallmark movies for us, even though Clark went on three podcasts and told everybody we all hated it. And it was <laughs> <laughs> Dean, I fought for four fucking years. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, we I appreciate just, it. We have to vet the things he brings up. Otherwise, we end up with, uh, you know. Have they ever done you dirty? <laughs> I've never done you wrong. I bring heat, baby. Dean, love you, man. <laughs> hey, thank you guys so much for having me and for uh, and for talking about fraud and for screening it at your festival. Uh, yep. It's also on Canopy if um, people have library memberships. Perfect. And then, uh, so- not our audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell tell us uh, when we can uh, expect Marcel. You know, I don't know. We had our premiere um, at Telluride a couple, a uh, few weeks ago, and um, we're working out the distribution deals with um, various distributors. Hopefully, it'll be within the year, though. Oh, so you're still you're still doing the fest circuit? Well, we're still. I don't know if we'll do another festival, especially because who knows whether festivals are happening. You know, Indeed. depends on COVID. Uh, but I, we, we, we're, we'll, we'll, um, I think probably commit to a distributor in the next like few weeks. Okay. So I'll know more then. All right. Well, well good luck, keep man. us updated. We, uh, we got to promote it. Yeah, yeah please. Um, um, I am going to hit you up for recommendations though. Oh dude, let's do it. Please do. All right. Thanks so much. You guys. <laughs>